0: All right, so welcome to Genesis. You know, we have wanted to study Genesis for a long time, um, but what we couldn't make happen is fit Genesis into one semester because I don't know if you've looked ahead, but it is a very big book. And so we were really, really um, thankful when we found that there were two studies broken up between Genesis 1 through 11 and Genesis 12 through 50, And Alice, um, y'all know Alice McQuitty, who is teaching a lot here. Yes, we do adore Alice. Alice has come on as our Bible study curriculum coordinator. And so Alice and I work really closely together on choosing our curriculum, on working with our teachers, and in so many different ways. And so when we sat down and looked through this study specifically about God of Covenant, we got really really excited. And so I want to give you the background a little bit of Genesis. Now to clarify, depending on what generation you are from, Genesis is not a rock band from the 80s. <laughs> I know. And it is not a game console, a video game console from the 90s. <laughs> Genesis comes from a word that is pronounced ra-sheet and it means beginning or origin. And so, as its name implies, Genesis is about beginnings. Now, there is a popular concept that has arisen in modern storytelling, and that is called an origin story. Right? We have seen lots of origin stories pop up. Um, Star Wars did it with Darth Vader when they did the prequels. Um, Marvel is doing it for lots of their characters right now. Um, If uh, you think about it, Lord of the Rings, the origin story was The Hobbit. This goes on forever. We love a good origin story because we like to know people's story. We like to know where they came from. Well, Genesis is an origin story. It is actually the, capital V, origin story. And if you think about it, all of these other origin stories that are appearing are actually showing up in the middle of the origin story of Genesis and the rest of scripture. And so what we know is that Genesis is an origin story of historical, Narrative prose, prose meaning it's just not poetry, and it's written in a linear format, a timeline format that will inform us about where the rest of the story is going, okay? Genesis is an origin story of historical narrative prose written in a linear format that will inform us about where the rest of the story is going. Now, what Genesis is not a beginning about is God, Because God has always existed. God has always been a triune God. He always was. And God is the only uncreated. Because everything else was created. If you were to take a piece of paper and make a T-chart on it, on one side, if you did uncreated and created, well, under uncreated, you would put God, and under created, you would put everything else. Because he is the only uncreated, and he created everything Else. He created everything that exists. He's both the creator and the ruler of all creation. But Genesis also tells us about humanity's tragic fall into sin and death and of God's unfolding plan of redemption through his covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants. Now, Genesis is included in a a part of the Bible called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a big word that really just means five books. Penta, like Pentagon, Pentateuch, five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, each one of these books isn't really a work on its own or complete in itself, and that applies to Genesis. We need to think of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, as kind of like a five-season series on Netflix, and when you, we all get what that exactly means. And when you get to the end of the first season, there's a cliffhanger that brings you to the next season. Because you just sit there and be like, watch next episode, even though it's the next season. So what that means actually for Genesis is that at the end of Genesis, um, God makes this promise to Abraham. And it gets partially fulfilled in Genesis. But at the end of the book, Jacob and his family are in the wrong country because of a famine. And so what is going to happen? And that is Genesis. So if you think about it, you have to think of the Pentateuch as this season that we a season of five seasons that we're watching in this series, okay? But we know that Scripture is not just about the first five books of the Bible, right? There, is, there are 66 books that we read from, um, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And these books together, they weave a redemptive pattern of God's goodness and faithfulness from the beginning all the way to eternity. And so this semester, we will be studying, as your book in front of you tells you, Genesis 12 through 50. And I think it's important that we get, first of all, some background on Genesis, on really what was going on when it was written and why it was written. And so let me give you the setting here, okay? Genesis is a book of the Bible that even if you're not a Christ follower, even if you haven't been around the church for very much, you have a pretty good idea of what's in Genesis. There's something about creation, a garden, an apple, a snake, and somebody who messes it all up. Now, if you've really been around church, you probably know about the Tower of Babel and a little something about circumcision, and that is Genesis. You see, we know that we don't know enough about Genesis that we don't need to study it, but there are times that we just skip over it because we think, I already know what's in there, and I don't need to study that. But let me give you a little secret, okay? Barry mentioned this too. He gave away my secret. Genesis is chock full of foundational things that will be relevant to the rest of your study of Scripture, to your spiritual formation, to your spiritual understanding. It sets the trajectory for everything else that is going to happen in this story. So Moses wrote Genesis. Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis and the other four books in the Pentateuch. As noted by Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus refers to it as Moses' writing, Moses' book, and other New Testament authors refer to it as Moses' writing. So because of Jesus and those other New Testament authors, we know that Moses wrote the Pentateuch. And it was written at the time that Israel, God's chosen people, it was written when they were wandering in the wilderness around 1400 B.C., plus or minus a century based on the dating. So it was written they had left slavery. They had escaped from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and they are wandering, wandering around in the wilderness. And this is when Moses writes these books. Now, two things were happening then when they were wandering in the wilderness, okay? Okay. The first thing that was happening is when they were in Egypt, they were indoctrinated with creation myths, with stories of false gods, of mythical gods and pagan tradition. You see, they had heard about the one true God, but they had also been indoctrinated with all of these stories of of gods who warred in the heavens and fought and went against each other. And there was chaos and and death, and just so happened that the earth came out of it, and people were made in all of this commotion. And that is what they heard, these stories of these false gods, that it was just by happenstance that the creation happened, maybe an explosion or, or something like a bang of some sort. Now, we're not going to get into that, don't worry. Um, what that means is all of these stories that they had heard were rooted in chaos and unrest and in fighting. And their lives were filled with imagery that was rooted in false gods, that was rooted in a culture that was not um, in alignment with the one true God. Their architecture, the political system, the social structure, all of this was built around their beliefs in false gods. And so here they are in the wilderness coming from these stories of chaos and war and fighting and death and believing that that's where they possibly came from. So that's the first thing that's going on. The second thing that's going on is they are on their way to Canaan. They are on their way to the promised land where, guess what? There are more false gods and more different stories. But God is sending them to his promised land to to be his people and to grow and prosper. And so Moses... Inspired by, the work of, inspired by God through the work of the Holy Spirit, he writes Genesis, the story of a God who creates with intention, a God who brings life with order and love and intentionality, not by accident, not by war, and not by death. And the Israelites were asking the question that we still ask today, who am I and where do I come from? They were, one, they were wondering back then. And so now they have Genesis to explain who they come from. One um, commentator, Bruce Waltke, he puts it this way. He says, At the heart of Moses' writing is a revolutionary message against other creation myths. One personal benevolent God overcomes chaos, which was an abyss blanketed in darkness to create a habitual world for, for its inhabitants. And he stands apart from his creation as the creator and ruler. He's not part of the other pantheon of deities that is bound up with his creation. But rather, his act of creation signifies that the whole world is not a part of his divine being. What's happening is that he creates and sustains all by the power of his being. And this assertion that God is the creator of all that is good... In the ruler of the universe is the ultimate statement about the creation narrative, that he is just and righteous and faithful and works on behalf of all that is good. So can you imagine having believed and been indoctrinated with this idea that you came from chaos and accident? Here is this God that is all that is true and good and righteous. You see, this was very formative for God's people who were wandering in the wilderness and who have heard of the one true God, but also are immersed in these competing ideas. And they're just not sure where they come from or where they're going. And this is why Genesis is important. So, to make sure you're caught up on your notes, let's do a little review. First of all, who is the author? Moses. Moses. When was it written? (laughs) 1400 B.C plus or minus a century, um, after they have left Egypt, after the exodus, while they are wandering in the wilderness. That's the important part, It's while they're in the wilderness. And to whom was it written? Israel. The Israelites, God's chosen people. It was written to them, but it is also for us, okay? All right, moving along. Y'all are doing awesome. To the style and theme. Genesis is a historical narrative, like I mentioned before, but it is also polemic in nature, now, polemic might be a new word. What po- it was new for me, actually. What polemic means is it is a strong written or verbal argument. What that means is when we're looking back at history, polemic history is written with the intent to shape or persuade. Now, it's rare that we actually read any type of history that doesn't have an intent to shape your belief most all history is written with an intent to shape your understanding about what really happened. And the Bible is not trying to be sneaky about trying to shape your ideas. The Bible is very clear. Moses's writing is very clear that it is trying to convince you and argue to you about the existence of this one true God. And so when we think about Genesis, we also think that the intention of Genesis is to tell us about God and to shape our understanding of who God is and who we are. And what that means is it is answering the most important questions that society has always asked. Who am I? Why am I here? What's the problem going on and what is the solution? But besides that, there is one important question that God is going to pose to the Israelites that's actually going to change everything for them. And it's going to point us to the central theme of the book. And that is, who is God? Who is God? This is the question that is reorienting the people of God, both then and actually now. This is for us. So as we read, as we go along, keep in mind, who is God and who am I? When you get to the weird stories in Genesis, there will be some for sure. Remember this is to pointing us to the character of God, of who is God and who am I? So now you have an idea of the purpose, the timing, and the theme for which Genesis is written. And so with the few minutes that we have left, we will go through Genesis chapters 1 through 11. So y'all can close these and pull out your little handout, and we will switch over, okay? So the author of our study, Jen Wilkin, she also has a study on Genesis 1 through 11, okay? And I'm currently listening to a podcast that she is doing with some of her um, co-workers, and they all did a challenge of summarize Genesis 1 through 11 in 15 seconds. And so you can bet when I heard that, I was like, I'm going to write this down, because this is going to be good, and I can use this, and then we'll be good to go. And so I did. And so Jen Wilkin, our author, summarizes Genesis 1 through 11 this way. It should be at the top of your handout. Genesis is telling us that God is our origin, and because of that, we owe him worship and obedience, but instead we worship ourselves. We were created to reflect him, but instead we choose to rival him. And despite the fact that we have rebelled against him, he reconciles us to him. He provides a way back, and he is faithful to ensure that happens. And so that is what we are going to see in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. God always was. God always has been. God is always there. And he has always been the triune God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God was hovering over this empty space, this empty void of disorder and darkness. And with his words only, he spoke and brought order and created a place where life would flourish. If you look at that chart in the first column, you will see in the six days he created everything in the earth. And do you see the way with which order and intentionality he created? On the first three days, he created spaces. And on the next three days, he filled those spaces with beautiful creativity, with things specifically designed to live there. Fish with gills, birds with wings, animals with legs. And each day after creating, he declared his creation good. And on the sixth day, God created humans, Adam and Eve, and he made them in his image. He filled them with life. They reflected his character They represented his rule, and they were charged with taking care of the world and harnessing creation's potential to yield beauty and order. And on the seventh day, God rested. God declared that his work was holy and righteous. He declared um, he rested from everything that he had done, and he blessed that day. And that is the first Sabbath, as we know. Now, once humanity is created, God blesses them and he gave them the garden and where there are two trees in that garden, okay? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He tells them they can eat freely from the tree of life, but they are forbidden from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they are given free will. Therefore, they have a choice of what choice they can make. They can either trust God's definition of good and evil Or they can choose autonomy, and they can define good and evil themselves. So enter the serpent. The serpent comes in, and we learn later in Scripture that the serpent is Satan. And he puts doubt in their minds about what God really meant when he forbid them to eat of the tree. That surely disobedience doesn't really mean death. God doesn't really mean it when he says that. And he convinces them that... Actually, they probably know what's better for them than God does. And so what happens is they eat of the forbidden tree, they sin, and they chose rebellion. They rebelled against the giver of life, therefore embracing death. Because isn't that what really happens when we choose it for ourselves instead of what the giver of life offers to us? What resulted to Adam and Eve was similar to what we experience when we sin, shame and remorse. And Adam and Eve hid from God, and as a result, God cursed the serpent, and God cursed Adam and Eve. He cursed the serpent and said that um, a human would later come and step on the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise that person's heel. And he turned to Adam and Eve and he cursed them and he told them that they would be met with consequences that their lives would be a lot more difficult now. It would be a lot more difficult with the earth, with their relationships, with their physical bodies, with their spouses and with God. And the irony of the story here is that they wanted <clears throat> excuse me, they wanted to be like God. Yet they were already like God, made in his image. But that wasn't enough for man so what God does is he covers them in garments of skin from an animal this is where we see the first blood sacrifice in scripture to cover Adam and Eve's sin so this is the first blood sacrifice where we see God's efforts to restore and rescue and redeem his people this is what he's doing to provide a way back So sent out into the world, Adam and Eve, give birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is a farmer, and he offers God a portion of his crops one day as a sacrifice. And Abel is a herdsman, Um, and he presents God not just with some of his herd, a portion of his flocks, but the fattest portion of his flocks. And God is very pleased. Well, that makes Cain angry, and so Cain murders Abel. He is angry about it, and so he just takes him out. And God causes Cain to wander away. He sends him away, and he moves into a land east of Eden where he builds a city full of violence and hate. Now, meanwhile, Adam and Eve have a third son named Seth. And so humanity is now growing through Seth and through Cain, and the human race begins to grow and to spiral. This is where we find Lamech the first man in Scripture to take more than one wife. And he was also violent and vengeful. And humankind just continues to become more evil. Now, there's the story of the sons of God in Scripture. It's one of the most bizarre stories in all of Scripture. And the greatest scholars and commentators cannot agree on what was happening here. So don't feel bad. (laughs) What um, is happening here is the sons of God are either evil angels... Or kings who are claiming that they are divine. We don't really know which one. Either evil angels or kings who are claiming they're divine. And they take wives and have children. And their children are called Nephilim. And Nephilim are actually mighty, mighty warriors who in turn are also violent and vengeful. And these warriors become, they form armies. And so what happens is humans begin to build kingdoms But not kingdoms for God's glory and beauty, kingdoms of their own, kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. And so the spiral of humankind just continues, it just keeps going. And 10 generations later, God saw that humans had created these terrible places in his kingdom, and it broke his heart. And he lamented about what had become of his creation. Because they are ruining God's world and they are ruining each other. So God makes a plan. He makes a plan to bring a flood and to destroy humankind, all of humankind, except for one man, one man named Noah, who God found faithful. Um, God speaks to Noah and he promises to establish a very special covenant with Noah if Noah and his family will build an ark, a boat to float on water, even though they live on land. It's a boat large enough to hold Noah's family and two of every kind of living animal while God sends a great flood to destroy the earth. Now, many scholars, keep this in mind, many scholars will assert that at this time, they had never seen rain before. It had never rained. And so, to imagine that something was going to happen in the earth that would cover the earth with water... They had never seen, they could never even comprehend something so violent that would happen. Yet Noah believes God and he trusts God's definition of good. And he does what the Lord says. And rain, they entered the ark, the family and two of every animal. And the rain begins to fall for 40 days and 40 nights, submerging the earth in water. And it was submerged in water for about a year And here they are living in this ark. And upon disembarking from the ark, God doubles down on his covenant with Noah because of Noah's faith. And so God sends the rainbow. God sends a rainbow as a promise to say that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood. That he will never um, curse the ground or the living things in the land because of man. Because God is determined To rescue and restore and redeem his people despite our efforts to rebel and rival and ruin. Yet, Noah, Noah, good and faithful as Noah may be, he's still not God. And one night, Noah gets drunk. He gets drunk in his vineyard and he lays naked in his tent. Now, this is a little bit of an odd story for our culture to also understand. There are most likely some cultural implications of what was going on here. Noah's drunk and naked in his tent, okay? There's no, like, appropriate way to say this. (laughs) And his son Ham comes in, and Ham sees him naked. And then Ham goes and tells his brother Shem and Japheth. And what Shem and Japheth do then is they take... A covering and they walk backwards so they won't see him naked and cover him up and when Noah wakes up and he hears about what's happened first of all why is he not embarrassed about the drunkenness (laughs) but instead curses his son Ham and he curses Ham probably what's happening is in this honor shame culture he is cursing Ham for the disrespect that he showed his father and he is blessing Shem and Japheth for the way that they respected their father And so what he tells them is, Ham, you and your descendants are cursed, and you will serve Shem and Japheth's um, descendants for the rest of time. Because once again, humans have rebelled against God. And God is still determined, once again, to restore and rescue and redeem his people, despite our efforts to rival and rebel and ruin. Now, many... Generations pass, and humankind once again becomes corrupt. Humankind once again chooses to rival God instead of just being content to reflect him. And so some men outside of Babylon, they get together, and they decide they want to make a name for themselves. They want to make their own name great. This is the exact same rebellion that was happening in the garden. It is the same idea of choosing me and my beliefs and my abilities and putting myself in the throne because I know better than God. It is the same thing that's going on, except now they have the technology of bricks and a lot more hands to do it. And so they build a tower. They build a tower that will go all the way to the heavens. And God looks upon them and he sees their arrogance and their sheer determination to make themselves great. And so he confused them. You know, at the time they all spoke the same language. But in this moment, he confused them so they could not communicate. In parenting, this is what we call redirection. (laughs) God was the original redirector. This is where we get this. And so he confuses them, and he forever disperses them into the rest of the world, spread apart, dividing humankind into separate nations, separate languages, and separate cultures. Hear this, still in the image of God, now different. And chapter 11 of Genesis concludes with the descendants of Noah and a picture of how God continually gives humans a chance, how God is determined to restore and rescue and redeem his people despite our efforts to rival and rebel and ruin. God is determined. He keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing, but humans keep ruining it because we live in a good world. That we make bad. Because from the beginning, from Adam to Noah to us, we have chosen to define good and evil for ourselves. We have chosen to put it in our definition, in our belief of what we think is best for us. And what has resulted is broken relationships with God, with others, with our world, and it leads to conflict and violence and an untimely death. So right now, humankind looks pretty bad, don't they? But it's not the end of the story, is it? Let's look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Who will make them into a great nation? God, not Abraham. God, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Does this sound a little different from the first 11 chapters of trying to make their own name great? It is God's turn to do some work. So, because God is determined to restore and rescue and redeem his people, we are going to study exactly how he does that. So it's the end of It's the middle of the season, actually. And what are the people going to do? Are they going to continue to rival and rebel and ruin? Or are they going to trust and surrender and seek God's face? There's only one way to find out. And you start tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for hope. Thank you that actually we can sit in this room and we know the end of the story. We know that you saw fit to send your son as our Savior to rescue and redeem when we did not deserve it. Thank you for seeing us and loving us by giving us your word and giving us an opportunity to study you, to study who you are and who we are in you. In your son's name we pray, amen. (laughs)